0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable where we start off the weekend by looking back at the big stories of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters. With news this week on several fronts, topping everything else, a blockbuster report by the Senate Judiciary Committee documenting repeated efforts by Donald Trump to overturn the results of the 2020 election, leading up to a dramatic three-hour showdown in the Oval Office on January 3rd. How close did Trump come to shredding the Constitution? Meanwhile, just when the media was frantically warning we might run out of money to pay our bills, Democrats and Republicans last night made a deal to keep the government funding, well, at least for another six weeks or so, which should have come as no surprise because isn't that what they always do? The big question is, will those six weeks give Democrats enough time to get their act together and pass the two big infrastructure bills, or will they just continue to bicker, bicker? And will devastating testimony from a Facebook whistleblower finally bring the congressional hammer down on social media companies? Here to sort it all out for us today, Sabrina Siddiqui, White House correspondent for Wall Street Journal. Hello, Sabrina.
0: Hello. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. Jennifer Habercorn, congressional correspondent for the L.A. Times. Hello, Jennifer. Hi, Bill. Welcome back. And David Jackson, welcome back also national political reporter for USA Today. Hi, David. Hey, Bill. How you doing? So let's start with this blockbuster report that really dominated the news released yesterday by the Senate Judiciary Committee detailing repeated efforts by President Trump uh, to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, Nine different times, according to the report, Uh, he uh, asked the Justice Department to uh, basically intervene uh, and overturn the election results, leading to a dramatic meeting in the Oval Office on January 3rd, three hours long. Senate Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin sort of outlines what's in the report and Trump's pressures on the acting Attorney General, Jeff Rosen.
2: There was a full court press by President Trump and his supporters to influence Jeffrey Rosen into intervening into this election contest. When I say full court press, I'm talking about repeated telephone calls and meetings in the White House over a period of two weeks. We were so close to a constitutional crisis at that moment that it bears continued investigation and disclosure. Former President Donald Trump would have shredded the Constitution To keep his office in the presidency.
1: So, Sabrina, this took place in the Oval Office, according to this report, three hours. Um, The White House counsel, Pat Cipollini, uh, Jeff Rosen, and others threatened Trump that there would be mass resignations. Uh, The thing that I noticed, Sabrina, in the coverage, wondering what you have picked up at the White House, is nobody involved in this meeting denies that's exactly what took place.
0: Right. I think at this point, uh, we've had many examples of former President Trump's efforts to overturn the election from the pressure that he exerted on members of Congress, on uh, state and local officials in Georgia and Arizona, on his own former Vice President Mike Pence not to certify the election on January 6th. And now, uh, I think an extension of the kind of pressure we had been aware of that he was placing on the Justice Department to also try and uh, join his baseless claims that there was some kind of voter fraud. And I think what's notable is not only was he repeatedly uh, telling Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen uh, that he wasn't doing enough to try and thwart the outcome of the election, but he also at one point thought about replacing Jeffrey Rosen with another Mm -hmm. official at DOJ, Jeffrey Clark, who was more supportive of uh, former President Trump's, uh, you know, claims of voter fraud. Again, no evidence whatsoever that there was voter fraud. In fact, there, there was no voter fraud, widespread voter fraud in the election. So, you know, I think that the question really, though, for the committee now, you know, the Senate Judiciary Committee has produced a report. There's separately a select committee that's investigating January 6th. You know, the, the, what's, what I think the administration now and, and the committees in Congress are struggling with is what does accountability look like? Because mm-hmm. we have all the evidence out there. There was an impeachment trial. The president, former president was impeached once again, acquitted once again by Republicans in the Senate. How do you prevent this from happening again? Because Trump very well may run for office in 2024. He could end up in the White House once again and surrounded by people who are much more sympathetic um, you know, and, and, and not willing to ultimately um, you know, ensure that those, the checks and balances that barely upheld democracy in January stay in place. And so I think that's a real question moving forward is, what do you do with all of this information now that you have it?
1: Well, what about that, David Jackson? I mean, doesn't this, in effect, amount to sedition? And aren't there consequences for
2: trying to overthrow the U.S. government? Well... uh I guess there should be, but it's hard for me to figure out how you how you prosecute this because Trump is just going to say, look, I wanted the Justice Department to investigate fraud, and he's going to claim that there was fraud, and it should have been investigated, and it's going to be a, a he said, she said kind of a thing in terms of, of, of the legal matter. So, I mean, I think it'd be very difficult to prosecute Trump on this kind of thing. I think you just have to rely on the voters to assess it. Um, you know, you mentioned the uh, this report, and uh, to me, the the key here is that we've got the details now of what actually happened. We knew back in late 2020 that Trump was pressuring the Justice Department into investigating his claims of voter fraud. You know, he put pressure right. on Bill Barr. He made no secret of that. And Barr made no secret of the fact that he said that it wasn't anything there. But Trump wasn't just doing that. He wanted he wanted the Justice Department to somehow invalidate the states that Biden won he wanted to throw out these electoral votes and he did that with the justice department and he put pressure on Mike Pence to do it at at that level. And that's what was going on here. It wasn't that he wanted people to investigate things. It's that he wanted them to invalidate many of uh, Biden's electoral votes, but, uh, here again, proving that in a court of law, I think it's going to be very difficult.
1: Well, back to that, David, sticking with you for just a minute. Uh, if anything happens, it would have to be the Justice Department that would decide to prosecute or to file charges against Donald Trump, correct? And I would think I mean, so, that, yeah. I think that it would, would be a federal mean, case. That would mean Joe Biden would have to uh, sign off on going after a former president for breaking
2: the law. Exactly. Well, there are signs that the Justice Department is looking into this, but I'm not expecting too much to come out of it. Although I should add that also the the prosecutors in Fulton County, Georgia, are also investigating what they described as Trump's efforts to uh, spike Biden's electoral votes in that state. So it it could be, I guess you could have a case in a specific individual state, but here again, it'd be awfully difficult to prove. Uh, Well, meanwhile, Jennifer, Republicans on the committee issued their
1: own uh, report, a minority report, if you will saying, well, Trump, so what? Trump ended up doing the right thing.
3: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that really illuminates um, just how much Republicans in the Senate, uh, you know, there was there were some who supported the impeachment trial, a, a small minority, and Republicans have really come back to Trump. If there was any separation, it is has been eviscerated. Uh, um, Chuck Grassley, the top Republican on the committee, issued his own report, really pushed back on Democrats' findings and said that the, pres- the former president listened to his advisors and followed their advice, um, which, of course, there's plenty of evidence that that was not the case. Um, Grassley is even appearing with the former president um, in mm-hmm. Iowa this weekend. Um, so, so if there was any daylight between Trump and Senate Republicans, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's gone now.
1: Yeah, I saw Grassley last night saying, yeah, he you know, he was asking questions, but then he decided not to move forward, and therefore he made the right decision. As you point out, he will appear with a former president at a big rally um, in Des Moines this weekend, Saturday. Sabrina, what the hell is Donald Trump doing holding a political rally in Des Moines
0: well, in 2021? I think he's doing what Donald Trump does and attracting attention to himself. Um, probably putting out feelers for another presidential campaign. Um, You know, obviously all eyes are on 2024. And look, he's someone who has still remained active, as we know, in Republican politics. Uh, He's using his PAC to endorse candidates uh, as well as threaten to primary Republicans who voted to impeach him or who were critical of him. You know, after January sixth, those who did not fall in line. So, you know, I think that you know, yeah, is he testing the appetite for another presidential bid? Uh, Probably, but I, you know, I think what's more important about all of this is, especially since we're connecting the dots between everything we're learning uh, about in in these reports and these investigations uh, with respect to the events that led up to January sixth and those that followed, is Republicans are contending with the fact that Donald Trump is still. Pretty much the figurehead of the party. And all of the polling suggests that, you know, although his numbers have, his approval has slipped, most Republicans would still prefer Trump over any other Republican candidate in 2024. And so you've, you know, even a lot of the Republicans who distance themselves from Trump. After the insurrection, now their tune is somewhat different, and they've tried to downplay the role that he played, that, that Trump played, um, you know, in the prior to the rioters storming the Capitol. And I think it's because they're looking at the numbers, they're looking at the writing on the wall, they're looking at Trump's actions, and the very real possibility that he runs again, and they're falling in line just as they did in 2016 and just as, as they did throughout his presidency so you know i think i think we're, we're not sure what he's going to say while he's in iowa um we're not sure if he's going to continue and push <laughs> his baseless claims of election fraud he probably will uh, but i think the broader storyline to take from all this is trumpism has, and his influence over the party it's something that hasn't gone anywhere and is, it's unlikely to go anywhere going into 2024
1: I'll bet you he has some choice things to say about Mitch McConnell in Iowa. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I think he might also say, you know, we won that recount in Arizona. Uh, <laughs> probably right. He's claimed that. David, your people in, in, in Iowa have been all over this. What What is Trump up to? He's got, by the way, there's no doubt
2: were he to run again, he'd carry Iowa, right? I right. Mean, so what's the point? Well, part of it's a personal deal from my understanding is that uh, the Republicans had really pushed him to visit after after he left uh-huh. the White House, so he's fulfilling that. But another thing to remember is that, you know, remember after the after the fiasco with the Iowa caucuses in 2020, there was talk about whether Iowa would still be the first presidential contest. Oh, remember right. all that? Yeah. Well, oh. That talk no longer exists because Trump has, has told Iowa that he wants them to be first in the Republican race, and I'm getting every indication the Democrats are going to follow suit. So one thing this visit to Iowa underscores is the fact that, once again, Iowa will be the first Presidential contest in twenty uh, twenty four certainly for the Republicans and perhaps for the Democrats as well. If for some reason Biden doesn't run,
1: so should we read this, David, as
2: uh, evidence that Trump has decided to run in twenty twenty four? Possibly, but you know it's Donald Trump. He I, I think he's I think he's clearly running. Uh, the only caveat I would offer is that people will tell you that he's he, he almost feels like he has to run because he's worried about his legal vulnerability. You know, he's under investigation in New York, and there are a lot of signs that. They may make a move on him. And I think Trump's feeling is that if he's a candidate, it's going to make it that much easier for him to claim that he's being persecuted for political reasons. Well, meanwhile,
1: whatever his plans are, uh, Jennifer, um, uh, some other Republicans are not sitting around uh, like waiting uh, for Trump to make up his mind. I'm thinking particularly about former Vice President Mike Pence, who had a big fundraiser in in Washington this week at a rooftop on, on Pennsylvania Avenue overlooking the Capitol. Uh, with a whole bunch of donors basically saying, I'm running. So is Ron DeSantis, by the way, from Florida. So we could down the list of others.
3: So we have lots of Republican senators and Republican governors who are making moves that indicate they're looking at 2024. You know, I'm thinking Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida and a lot of other Republican governors who are saying they want to repeat Texas' um, anti-abortion bill that, uh, Passed a couple uh, weeks ago, and or, or I'm sorry, went into effect a couple weeks ago, um, and you have a lot of Senate Republicans who are casting votes um, that indicate they don't want um, political vulnerabilities in 2024, such as um, uh, uh, raising the debt limit to ensure that the country doesn't go into uh, economic collapse. So, um, uh, you know, whether whether President former President Trump would be able to clear that field is too soon to say mm-hmm. but um they're making the moves that they want to be part of that conversation
1: yeah as i mentioned mike pence was uh, the, the one that stuck out for me this week right simply because he is trump's vice president uh i'll ask all of you does anybody think any of these people that we're talking about whether it's nikki haley or Ron DeSantis or mike pence would challenge donald trump in a republican primary jen you start
3: i think it's I mean, you know, I was struck by Nikki Haley's comments this week saying that we need trump in the republican party and she doesn't want to go back to a republican party before trump you know it's just a couple months ago that she did a really in-depth mm-hmm. in- interesting interview with tim alberta when he was at politico um and he was trying she was trying to distance herself from the former president right. at that time um so the fact that she has really flipped in just a couple months um was really shocking to me and perhaps an indicator that you know other republicans would uh you know, th- knowing what he did to them in the 2016 election um would be too intimidated to take him on.
1: What do you think, Sabrina?
3: You know,
0: <laughs> I think it's hard to imagine that Republicans would challenge Trump if he wants to run for president again. And, you know, I, I, Nikki Haley's comments uh, were in fact very interesting. Uh, you know, I, I think as Jen was just pointing out, because she said that, and Mike Pence has done this too, by the way, where they she said that she disagrees with him on January 6th and disapproves of, of his actions, but still called him a friend. And <laughs> uh, again, still spoke of the influence he has in the party. And that's something that former Vice President Mike Pence has done, where he effectively said that, you know, Former President Trump and I agree to disagree about what happened on January sixth, but I'm still so proud of everything we accomplished in the administration. Um, right. Even though rioters who breached the Capitol were chanting "Hang Mike Pence" and pr- pr- prepared potentially to inflict violence upon him, um, in yeah. part because they were goaded by the former president to go um, and and specifically go after Mike Pence for over his refusal to um, try and thwart the certification of the election. So the fact that there is that willingness to sort of embrace this cognitive dissonance uh, between Trump and his role on January 6th and and, and what they see as his contributions to the Republican Party or how popular he is. I think that, if you read between the lines, is really a way of remaining on the good side of not just former President Trump, but also his base of supporters, knowing that he very well may once again be the nominee, that he could very well be in the White House once again. So I think the field is his for the taking. You know, are there others who emerge as viable alternatives? Are there you know, opponents or critics of Trump who, who make a run for it, who obviously would not step aside if anything they would want to turn the tide? That's all possible, uh, but they're going to have to really hope that the numbers change and that Republican primary voters are, don't still overwhelmingly support Trump
1: come 2024. Uh, and david this week mike pence in, in told fox news that he thinks uh, democrats are, play, are paying too much attention to january 6 right you know You're right <laughs> even yeah. though as sabrina just pointed out he had to run he had to run for his life
2: yeah too much attention yeah. to january 6 yeah he's got to well he's got to say something about january 6 i guess he figures that's his best play i don't know um uh, it's, it's it's frankly hard for me to see any of these guys challenging trump uh, I, I think there's a real possibility that trump could run virtually unopposed but I have to add that you know a lot of people involved in these wannabe campaigns are are serenely confident that Trump will not run. I, mean, I don't know where they're getting that from. They won't tell mm-hmm. me. But there there's a lot of confidence among some of these other in these other wow. campaigns that that Trump ultimately will not run for whatever reason, whether it's indictment or just that he doesn't want to go through the hassle. And that's why they're getting ready because they want to be in position for when
1: that vacuum occurs. Meanwhile, uh, I think it'd be an exaggeration to say that Joe Biden ever enjoyed uh, a honeymoon, but whatever kind of honeymoon he might have had has sort of disappeared in the wind. Uh, Quinnipiac's latest poll showing that Joe Biden, President Biden now has a 38% approval rating nine months into his presidency, which is exactly where Donald Trump was nine months into his presidency. Um, Sabrina, what the hell happened?
0: it's a tough one, right? Uh, I think that it's not clear that there's any one singular event. Um, Obviously, there was a lot of criticism over the way the withdrawal from Afghanistan played out. Uh, He's had a pretty rough go at it in recent months, if you include Afghanistan, as well as the fact that the Delta variant obviously has meant COVID has remained a prominent issue. Um, You know, even if he's tried to encourage people to get vaccinated, the fact that there's still a significant percentage of people who are unvaccinated means that we're still grappling with the pandemic. You know, children are wearing masks in schools. And, and, you know, there's probably a sense that that return to normalcy that was promised and that the president and the White House were very optimistic about early in the summer um, hasn't yet arrived. And, you know, obviously the economy has improved, but there's still a lot more um, that I think the administration is hoping to achieve, which is why they're so focused on infrastructure and their economic priorities because you know, I think I think that they recognize that without legislative accomplishments, they won't have as much to sell to the public going into the midterms. Um, you know, obviously, it's always the case that, Uh, When you have a presidential election and you're going into uh, midterms, that those elections tend to favor the party that's not in the White House if as precedent. So there is some natural, I think, just, you know, drop in approval ratings that you see when some, but but it's concerning for, I think it's very concerning for the White House that the approval ratings are where Donald Trump's were uh, at the same stage in his presidency, because Trump was historically unpopular even when he was in office. And, um, and, and there's been a drop in support. I think this is key to among independents who voted, who, who, vote, who voted, for, who were instrumental to Biden's victory in 2020. So I think the big challenge for Democrats is going to be in for Biden is Trump is no longer on the ballot, at least for now. You know, he's not on the ballot in 2022. And a lot of their success in 2018 in terms of taking back the House in 2020, in terms of taking back the White House and then taking back the Senate marginally with the Georgia Senate elections had to do with the fact that independent voters, suburban women, a number of key constituent, key groups, I should say, had soured on Trump. So what, you know, what do they do to lift Biden's approval ratings and and to kind of coalesce those same groups behind Democrats in 2022 without Donald Trump on the ballot?
1: Well, well, Jennifer, how much of this do you think, first of all, is COVID-related? I'm talking about Joe Biden's low approval ratings now. Uh, COVID-related, we've seen even Ron DeSantis, Mike DeWine, Gavin Newsom, governors, right, suffering in their ratings because of um, dissatisfaction with however they were handling COVID. And I wonder also, Jennifer, from your perspective, how much is related to the Democratic squabbling in Congress and inability to get anything done?
3: Oh, I think it's a huge factor. And if anything, it's I think it's going to be motivating to Democrats to get their um, conflicts resolved um, and get this passed. I mean, I was talking to Senator Mark Warner from Virginia this week, and he was saying that uh, this needs to be done before the gubernatorial election in, in, in Virginia next month, because he is concerned about Terry McAuliffe's chances if um, there isn't a big accomplishment to point to, and so I think that's going to be raining down on Democrats as they move forward with infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And to your point, I think you know COVID definitely plays a part. I mean, you you see half the country is frustrated with any kind of talk of mandates or closures, and m- the vast majority of the country is just frustrated that COVID is still here. Whether they're upset that people won't get vaccinated or they're just upset with the situation, so um, you know not all of that is Biden's fault, but he's certainly taking the fall for
1: it. Uh, David, uh, Jen mentioned Virginia. I was going to uh, ask you about that next. This is the first big test for Joe Biden, isn't it? The Governor's in the race of, in Virginia.
2: Yes. yes. And Terry McAuliffe told uh, some supporters on a Zoom call earlier this week that he was facing headwinds because of Biden and that uh, he acknowledged that Biden was, quote, unpopular, end quote, in Virginia. So we're all wondering if we're going to see the president campaign for McAuliffe in Virginia or if McAuliffe even wants the president to campaign for him. So yeah, it's, that's, that's one of the things we're looking for in this Virginia's race is the, is the Biden impact on the vote.
1: Well, we talked a little bit there. Uh, uh, Jennifer mentioned the uh, inability so far of Democrats to get their act together when it comes to the infrastructure. Uh, we also had a big move yesterday on the debt ceiling Let's get into all of that with today's panel, Sabrina Siddiqui, David Jackson, and Jennifer Habercorn, after a quick break here on the Bill Press Roundtable. And today's roundtable brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. They are the Teamsters Union, the largest and most diverse of all of America's labor unions, over one and a half million members, uh, representing Truck drivers, of course, that's how we think of Teamsters maybe today, but a lot more than that, representing just about every segment of the American labor force, including vegetable workers in California, construction construction workers in Las Vegas, brewery workers in Milwaukee, and bakers in Maine. As they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers, all under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa long-time president of the Teamsters, who will be leaving office uh, at the end of this year. We salute the Teamsters for their good work and thank them for their support of the Bill Press pod.
2: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
0: Grill, patio, sunset,
3: hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in.
2: Oh, burger time.
1: we're back with today's roundtable. David Jackson joining us from USA Today, Jennifer Abercorn from the LA Times, and Sabrina Siddiqui from the Wall Street Journal. So uh, yesterday, late yesterday, by a vote of 50 to 48, the Senate moved to extend the debt ceiling. We're not going to go broke. We'll still be able to pay our bills, extending it by $480 billion until what or about December 3rd. <laughs> so, uh i just got to ask you uh david you're laughing i'll start with you uh, i mean didn't we make too we in the media make too big a deal over the fact of this debt ceiling oh my god we're not going to be able to pay our bills oh my god we're going to go belly the sky up. is I mean, falling yes. how many times have we played this
2: this is well, all kabuki theater isn't it that's yeah that's way, exactly that's my impression and, you know it's ever since our old friend ted cruz used the debt ceiling to try to Get the Senate to somehow wipe out uh, Obamacare. Remember that? I, oh yeah, it's yeah. it's yeah. It's, it, was, it was all very familiar, and because uh, at one point I thought we had gotten rid of the debt ceiling. Do you remember that? I, I thought that there was no, no longer going to be going to be a debt ceiling, but obviously I was wrong about that. And uh, and that's the one thing that I that I always think about when these things come around is, is why is there a debt ceiling in the first place? That basically I I find it hard to believe that the government would stop paying its debts to people because it would collapse the stock market and other markets worldwide. So I I think it's become nothing more than a political football and a media football, and it should be gotten rid of.
1: Uh, Yeah. Jennifer, they were even talking about this was, this was a ta- chance where this was a time we're going to get rid of the filibuster, right? Over the debt ceiling. And, yeah. And that, and, and that never happened, right?
3: Exactly. And the filibuster's fate is secured for the foreseeable future. Um, if I can be frank, this fight was really stupid. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, Please I mean, be frank. <laughs> neither Please. party was going to let the country fall into default, right? Um, and if anything, they were going to accidentally stumble into a default. But there is such tension right now between Republicans and Democrats, and Schumer and McConnell, and this was a a game of chicken about something very serious, and. Um, it, it was, frankly, just hard to watch and uh, does not inspire any confidence whatsoever in Congress.
1: Uh, and, Sabrina, at best, all they did was, to use the overworked phrase, kick the can down the road, right? I mean, at best, a Band-Aid, uh, giving us another six weeks. after. The bill, at-
0: Congress loves kicking the can down the road. That's their <laughs> favorite pastime.
1: That's I what mean- they that's I mean, what that, they do best, that's right?
0: They, that's what they did with the continuing resolution to keep the government open also through December. And so now what they've done is left two major legislative deadlines on the table uh, with just weeks to to resolve them. And that includes not just the fact that they're going to have to deal with the debt limit again come December, but that's also when they have to uh, pass another bill to ensure that the government remains open and that there's no partial shutdown So, you know, I think that, you know, there's a lot of talk of did Republicans blink? I mean, in the the short term, yes, because for obviously months now, Republicans were saying that they were not going to join with Democrats for a debt ceiling increase, even though obviously it's long been a bipartisan tradition and also was under former President Trump. But I think come December, we're going to be having the exact same conversation where Democrats are probably going to have to go at it alone. Republicans already after the vote, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, just to to raise the debt limit said that they're not going to do this again in, in two months. And so we'll have that same conversation. Will they do it? Will Democrats do it through reconciliation, which is a very complex process. Uh, We would include, you know, maybe two voteramas and a whole, you know, they've said it's challenging. It's not their preferred mechanism or are they going to do some kind of filibuster carve out for the debt ceiling, which would then open the door to a filibuster carve-out for a number of other Democratic priorities. So, you know, all things, all, that, all that being said, though, we will be having the same conversation a few weeks from now as we often do with Congress. Uh,
1: right. Uh, and, David, some people were saying yesterday, some Democrats were saying, well, this is actually good because this gives us six weeks and we can take advantage of the time to pass our two big infrastructure bills. Huh. It sounds yeah. like maybe wishful thinking.
2: Uh, To say the least. Well, they got to say something because there are other Democrats who say this is all part of an evil McConnell plot to stretch this out and keep making the Democrats look bad by engineering Mm -hmm. crisis after crisis. So it's yeah, it's it's not a good solution. And I think it's going to be an uncomfortable couple of months here for for the Democrats and for some Republicans.
1: Uh, And, Jennifer, you uh, covering Congress, the the debate, um, uh, the infighting, I, I guess I would call it, among Democrats. Over the two infrastructure bills, the hard infrastructure and the soft infrastructure, or the physical and the human, however you want to define them. Um, the progressives seem to be leading the winning the battle so far. Uh, the head of the progressive caucus, Pramila Jayapal, sort of laid down the line. She wants uh, as close to $3 trillion as she can get, and she's laid out exactly what she thinks has to be contained in the bill. Here she is this week.
3: 96 percent of Democrats in the House and the Senate agree with the President and with 70 percent of the American people that the programs that are in the Build Back Better Act are the programs we should deliver. Because it's really not about the number, it's about what programs are in there. We identified five priorities for the caucus. It includes the care economy, housing, immigration, healthcare, particularly expanding Medicare, and it includes climate change. Those five priorities should all be contained in whatever the final bill is. And we would rather trim back the number of years, if we have to come down slightly, than cut a program.
1: So what does divide the Democrats here, Jennifer?
3: Well, you know, I think Manchin, frankly, the centrists have won the first round by lowering hmm. the overall price tag. And I think the question moving forward is going to be...
1: How low do, it goes?
3: <laughs> well, that's one question. But do the progressives get their preferred it cuts, frankly, um, you know, progressives overall would prefer to, uh, shorten the amount of time these programs are in place, but ensure that all programs get off the ground where the centrists are saying, let's means test, um, these programs, um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of debate over how they're going to trim that. And, you know, you can argue that getting these programs off the ground and giving them, you know, two or three years would really uh, start to ingrain them in American life. And we have plenty of evidence that once programs are in place, it's very hard to take them away. Republicans were not able to do that with the Affordable Care Act. Um, but there's some people who say, you know, let's let's focus all of our resources in a couple Programs to make sure those are really fulsome and and we can show some benefits. I don't know yet how that's going to play out. Um, uh, I have lawmakers who've told me that President Biden is okay with means testing and uh, favors um, uh, doing programs for a short amount of time, but it's very much an open debate, and um, we don't know where Kirsten Cinema is. Uh, the progressives can talk all they want, but if Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin decide to hold up a bill in the Senate, I think progressives are going to become convinced that they need to just do something, even if it's not everything that they want it to be.
1: Uh, and Sabrina, I was struck this week when the president said, seemed to indicate that he agreed with Congresswoman Jayapal that the two infrastructure bills are linked, right? Uh, and you can't have one without the other.
0: Right. You know, I think that that, though, in part is because when the bipartisan infrastructure uh, compromise was reached, progressives and not just progressives, a, a number of rank and file Democrats expressed frustration that the bipartisan infrastructure compromise did not include key democratic economic priorities And at that time, I was at the White House when they reached that deal, and President Biden stood there with the Republicans and Democrats who had worked on the infrastructure bill, and he said that they were going to do it on a dual track system, and he said that they were going to pass the human infrastructure, which is what they, you know, Mm -hmm. the reconciliation bill—that's often how they refer to it—alongside the the BIF, (laughs) the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, and so, um, so you know, I think that that was something the president himself had floated as. A strategy. And so now, you know, that the Democrats feel very strongly, or at least progressives feel very strongly, that that's the leverage that they have, where, you know, if, if the bipartisan infrastructure bill passes, then they might be forced to just swallow any compromise on reconciliation. And the only leverage they have is to hold up the, their hold their votes on, on, in, on infrastructure and say, you know, not until we get a deal on reconciliation. And so, Look, but to Jen's point, I think a lot of this is now going to be about where do they c- find compromise, and most importantly, how far are Sanders, Mansion, and Cinema willing to go? Mansion, at least, is is negotiating. He is at the table. He's having conversations at the White House. He's putting numbers out. He's mm-hmm. he's putting proposals like means testing out there. You know, progressives have said that have said that they would be open to funding programs for a shorter time. It was notable that AOC even said that. Um, on one of the Sunday shows that that might be where some of the compromise lies, where they don't fund these programs for 10 years, but perhaps for for fewer years. But cinema has just not been clear, and the White House has been a bit frustrated now, I think you can see it publicly, that they have no idea what it is that she wants. And so, you know, I think there's precious time to get this done. Again, it goes back to they want something to hold up in the midterms, and what is it going to take to get everyone on board?
1: Uh, and David, back to the political nature of that, the national political nature of this, here, the Democrats have the White House, the House barely, the Senate even more barely, right? Uh, and yet, they can't deliver on the on the on their agendas, stuff that they've been talking about that they were going to do if they get back in power forever. Um, that
2: that can't help Democrats across the board nationwide. No, not at all. You, you just outlined a, some a few Republican ads. I think that we may be hearing about, especially if this entire God forbid, but go ahead. yeah, well, ironically, <laughs> um, especially if this these whole negotiations go south and they wind up doing nothing. I and mean, it's going to be devastating. But yeah, I think you're going to hear you're going to hear an awful lot about this from the Republicans who say, look, the Dem- they're either going to say, look, the Democrats are in charge and they're spending all this money and we're not getting anything for them. or they're going to say the Democrats are in charge and they can't get anything done. And, oh, by the way, look at how they're harassing poor old Kristen Sinema. Look how mean they are. So it's uh, certainly the Republicans are sitting back and watching with glee, ready for the 2022 midterms. Right. Uh, So winding up uh,
1: away from politics for just a moment, although everything is political, a new voice in Washington today. um, She originally talked to The Wall Street Journal uh, and then went on 60 Minutes. And before she went on 60 Minutes, she uh, uh, revealed – identity, Francis Hagen, who is a former um, Facebook product manager, testifying in front of Congress this week uh, that Facebook uh, their processes harm children, stoke division in the country, weaken our democracy, they put profits before people. Jennifer, does this mean that uh, finally Congress is going to bring the hammer down on the social media companies, Facebook, Google, and others?
3: You know, it, it it definitely could be, um, but...
1: It was pretty dramatic Congress, testimony.
3: It, it was dramatic, um, but Congress has a bad history of saying that they're going to do something about social media and then doing nothing. Um, we've seen that several times now. You know, uh, uh, Zuckerberg from Facebook and other social media giants have testified, and everyone has framed it as, this is the moment, and um, we're, we're not there. I mean, there's the safest bet when dealing with Congress is that they're not going to do something. And, um, I don't mean to sound like a a downer, but uh, it feels like that's, that's going to be what happens here. Um, that's not, that doesn't mean that's the way it should be, but that, that's how it looks to me.
1: Sabrina, do you, do you uh, agree? Does Facebook survive?
0: I think so. Uh, you know, this, this uh, investigation by my colleagues at the wall street journal is, the biggest internal document dump in in the social media company's history right. has been extremely revealing, showing the toxic effect of Instagram, especially on young people, on teenage mental health. It has it demonstrates the way in which hate speech uh, remains unchecked. Uh, you know, obviously, a lot of the criticism that. You know, January sixth, that the organizers were, you know, on Facebook uh, making clear their intentions, and that the company did not do enough to stop it. There's so much there, and and there has been this dramatic testimony. But to Jen's point, there's often this this issue where, with with tech in particular, um, there's they'll, you'll have these these dramatic hearings. I mean, remember Mark Zuckerberg has testified multiple times before Congress himself. And nothing comes from it. Nothing came, yeah. not, not much came, nothing came by way of regulation after Facebook had to answer for its role in Russian interference in the 2016 election. Um, and and I, I think, you know, look, President Biden campaigned on, the, on regulating Facebook and other tech companies. And we've heard very little from his White House on that subject since he took office. It's really not a priority for them. It's something they still say they support from the White House podium, but they haven't really put out any proposals themselves. And I think it's important to, to note that Silicon Valley has emerged as the most influential lobby, one of the most influential lobbying groups in Washington. You know, they, they now outspend Wall Street when it comes yeah. to their influence over lawmakers on Capitol Hill. So I don't know what oh. changes you'll see, but I suspect if you do, they would be very marginal.
1: So what about it, David? I've seen people say, this is the big tobacco moment, right? This is like big tobacco. And yet it's not. Is
2: it a case of follow the money? Oh, very, very much so. I also find it very difficult to see Congress doing anything for a couple of reasons. One, you know, the First Amendment implications, I think, will be will be significant if push came to shove. Secondly, what if they do anything, it will be subject to a to lawsuits and we'll have a, the biggest legal fight since the Microsoft days. I'm not I'm not sure anybody wants that. But mostly and at least in my view is the Republicans and the Democrats both want to go after big tech, but they have different reasons. I mean, they basically think that the big tech favors the other guy. So I don't mm-hmm. I don't see any consensus emerging from Congress on what exactly to do about this uh that is a uh, that is a good point uh that the conservatives
1: think it, it's all anti conservative and the democrats think it's a platform for the uh, extreme right wing so exactly yeah uh, there we go. Great roundup. Great to uh, take a look at the big stories of the week. Thank you so much, Sabrina Siddiqui, David Jackson, and Jennifer Haberkorn. We're not going to let you go, though, without uh, telling us what everything was going on this week. What's the one story that uh, caught your attention, made you stop in your tracks uh, for a few seconds and think, hmm, this is interesting or funny or sad or whatever? Uh, Jen, your favorite story of the week. Start us off, please.
3: Okay, so mine, um, a little off-topic, is the New York Times Magazine story, Who is the Bad Art Friend? Um, and maybe because I'm a writer, I, I just got totally invested in the story. Um, it's, a, it's a winding tale. I don't want to
2: um,
1: yeah.
3: spoil it for anyone, but uh, definitely uh, worthy of a long read. Uh,
1: who is the bad art f- friend? Art friend. Hmm. now I'm curious. I've got to go back. I missed it because I was out of the country. I'm going to have to go back and uh, and pick. Do you have a little clue? about?
3: Um, It's a story about potential plagiarism. Uh, Mm -hmm. Someone had an interesting thing in their life. Another person wrote about it in a Uh fiction novel and um, a a big disagreement about whether it was plagiarism, whether it was... um, appropriate and whether the person was a bad art friend by not supporting their uh, work of art that came from this.
1: Uh, you've got my attention. I'll check it out. Yeah, uh, David Jackson. Help uh, us the, out. My,
2: my comfort food this week was the debut of the new James Bond film, No Time oh. to Die, which has been pushed <laughs> back for like a year and a half because yeah. of COVID. So I'm relieved that it's here and it's another sign of normalcy. It's also the last go around for Daniel Craig, who I think has been a superb James Bond and I think they gave him a good uh, sending off, and now we get to talk about who's going to be the next James Bond. Uh, So are you telling us, uh, David, now it's safe to go back to the movies? Uh, Well, apparently because it's in theaters only. It's not being live streamed, so I'll actually have to buy a ticket and walk in, which is also new, but kind of comforting because it's, here again, another sign of of a return to
1: normalcy. Uh, uh, Let's hope so. The front page, a picture in the New York Times this morning of – the crowd at the carnegie hall for the first time in oh beautiful almost a year almost 2 years yeah uh, and sabrina your favorite story Well, you know, animal related i have to bring, I, I have to bring
0: it, well i have to bring a dog story because i have to remain on brand and so i enjoyed a story that about my favorite subject dogs which um, is that hungarian researchers spent more than 2 years uh, looking for dogs for a study that has significantly advanced our understanding of dogs' memories, and actually suggests that some of them have a really remarkable grasp of the human language. And so these researchers in Hungary studied six border collies. uh, It was not intentional, it was by design. And they found that some of them can remember more than 100 words.
1: Whoa. Um,
0: yes. And so they enlisted them to take part in a series of live streamed experiments that is known as the genius dog challenge. And, you know, they started with, by getting them to learn the names of a few toys each week and then they would mm-hmm. keep increasing the number of toys. And as, as I said, some of them apparently can remember the names of up to 100 toys, which means that they've learned the, roughly 100 words in the English language. So it shows you that our furry friends are a lot smarter than we may think.
1: Well, especially border collies. I have to tell you, having uh, had a great border collie as a pet uh, out in California, um, they're very smart dogs. They're wonderful dogs. And uh, our dog, a wolf, uh, at least I remember one word that he definitely knew was walk. Uh, and so uh, Carol and I got to spelling W A L K. But then he, he, he learned that. He even learned how to spell it. So uh, we could not use that word without his going crazy, looking for his leash and ready to go. Uh, uh, very good story. Uh, uh, mine is uh, sort of like inside politics here in Washington. Uh, but it, um, it has to do with a meeting at the White House where the president invited some top Democratic senators now to talk down to the Oval Office to talk about the debt ceiling. Uh, And when they got back to uh, Capitol Hill, uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar said to to John Tester, hey, John, that was a nice quote on the debt ceiling. And John said, what do you mean? And Amy read the quote back to him. She had made some notes where he said something about um, why do we have to go through this fucking act again or whatever. And Tester said to Klobuchar, "No, I did not say fucking in the Oval Office." And Amy replied, "John, I wrote it down. Yes, you did say fucking in the Oval Office." To which John Tester replied, "God damn it! I'm trying to wean myself off of this, but." But maybe not. <laughs> He's got to make some more effort there. But uh, I, I find that very... There were days when you wouldn't dare say that word in the Oval Office, I guess. Things have changed, right? There's always time for a good F-bomb. You know? <laughs> That's right. All right. Great roundtable today. David. David Jackson, USA Today, thank you so much, Sabrina Siddiqui, Siddiqui World's... A wall street journal thank you sabrina and jennifer haperkorn from the great la times thank you jennifer as well and thank you all for listening and for joining us uh that's it for our roundtable we'll be back on tuesday i'm really looking forward to the next podcast with pete williams from nbc news talking about the new term of the united states supreme court what we can expect what's coming up and what changes we might see on the Supreme Court. That's the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Don't miss it. Meanwhile, take care of yourself. Be strong, be safe, be sane, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.